Romancing the Tomb, a Good Omens fan fiction, written by Auntie Kate, read aloud by Skyasimaru. If you enjoy this podfic, you can check out the original story on Archive of Our Own. If you would like to hear more of my recordings or see some of my own work, you can find me through the pen and screen name of Skyasimaru. Romancing the Tomb Summary Romance novelist Aziraphale Wilder is pulled from his carefully ordered life when his sister is kidnapped and held to ransom. With the help of antiquities forger Anthony J. Crowley, he braves the wilds of Scotland to rescue her and keep a priceless book from falling into the hands of dangerous book thieves. Chapter 1 Fantasy Cowboy Boyfriend Antonio burst into the saloon through the swinging doors like an angel of vengeance, and Zachariah knew at that moment that there would never be another man for him. A thrill ran through Zachariah's body at the sight of him. The swagger of his hips, the faint dusting of stubble along his square jaw, the triangle of exposed skin beneath the red bandana around his neck, the way he held the shotgun almost casually, although Zachariah knew his aim would be perfect. He came for me, he thought. He strained at the rope wrapped around his body as Antonio strode into the room, the leather chaps around his thighs. Wait, was the thing about leather chaps ridiculous? Aziraphale stopped typing and took a sip of his tea and thought long and hard about distressed leather wrapped around long, lean legs. Note to self, more about chaps here. You're too late, Antonio, Grogan sneered, leveling his Colt revolver at Zachariah's head. This little bird has already sung. He told us everything. Zachariah tried to look into Antonio's beautiful amber eyes, but his hat was pulled low, obscuring them from view. Oi, mate, is this one twenty percent off too? The customer slapped the book down on the counter. Aziraphale looked up from his laptop with irritation, but he put on an insincere smile as he scanned the book and rang it up. Anathema had begged him to come and work at the bookshop for the day, and she'd made those big round eyes at him and promised him she'd pick up sushi and a bottle of something lovely when she got home from Edinburgh. So he'd agreed, even though his manuscript was on deadline, and he was struggling with the whole second act. Even though he hated customers, even though he was probably less useful than Warlock, Anathema's stinky little dog, it had taken him weeks to learn how to use the till, and sometimes, after he locked up, he'd get halfway home and have to come back to make sure he'd done it properly. It was Anathema, though, so he suffered through it. Not silently, of course, because while he loved his sister, he didn't love her enough not to whinge. The customer left, and he returned to his draft. Is that so? Antonio hissed. Zachariah shook his head, trying to plead with Antonio with his eyes. He didn't dare speak. The revolver was so close to his head he could smell the oil and the faint hint of gunpowder. 
note to self, gunpowder smell, was cordite in use in the 1870s? <clears throat> Grogan reached down and jerked Zachariah's head back. He shuddered with horror at the touch of the man who had murdered his family. Such a pretty little birdie, he said. Be a shame if anything happened to him. Zachariah, Antonio said in a low voice, do you trust me? Zachariah gave the tiniest of nods, and Warlock trotted up and barked at him, which meant he needed to go outside. Aziraphale begrudgingly took him out to the small park across the street from the bookshop, even though he was sure the dog was just doing it to annoy him. Surely the blasted creature didn't need to urinate fifteen times a day. He settled back down at the front counter and opened his file again. The shot rang through the saloon. Grogan fell to the floor. Antonio crossed the floor to Zachariah's side, his spurs jangling, and used his knife to cut through the rope that bound him to the chair. He pulled him to his feet and into a crushing embrace, his mouth ho- Aziraphale's phone rang. How's the shop? Anathema asked cheerfully down the line. There have been an inordinate number of customers today. They were all very annoying, buying things and asking me questions. Anathema laughed at that. <laughs> I appreciate your hard work at chasing them away. How's the writing? It'd be going much better without all these interruptions. You old grump. Did you talk to that cute barista from the cafe yet? Aziraphale shut his eyes. No, and I'm not going to. As, as, as. He's cute. He's right next door. He's always giving you free biscuits. He's perfect. If you like him so much, you should ask him out. He's extremely gay, or I would. Come on, as. He's always flirting with you. I'm just not looking for anything right now. No, I think your problem is you're waiting for someone to ride up on a white horse and sweep you off your feet. And that just doesn't happen in the real world. You have to actually work for these things, you know? Aziraphale sighed and Anathema stopped. I'm sorry, Az. I just want you to be happy, she said, contrite. They'd had this conversation before. Anathema thought he should get on some dreadful app and go on dates with random strangers and chat up men at the shops, and he was perfectly content to do none of those things. "'I am happy, dearest,' he replied firmly. "'What time is your flight getting back?' "'Actually, that's why I called. I've nearly got the buyer worn down on this manuscript. It's amazing, As I don't think they know what they've got.' But I might need to stay up here overnight. Anathema, you said one day. One day up north, trying to buy a mysterious old book from some elderly collector. Come on, Aziraphale. If I get this manuscript, it could change everything. I could focus on the rare books instead of the shop. I could take you on a proper holiday instead of you always paying for everything all the time. I have plenty of money, Anathema. It's not a problem for me to pay for things. I know. She made a dissatisfied noise. But still, can you handle everything tomorrow? He rubbed his forehead. It wasn't Anathema's fault he'd written himself into approximately a thousand corners with his plot, 
and only had four days before his first draft was due to his publisher. He could work all weekend on it without interruptions, and he didn't sleep much at the best of times, so a few all-nighters wouldn't kill him. "'Of course, my dear. I'll bring Warlock home with me, shall I?' He returned to his laptop, back to the kiss. His two characters had been separated for forty pages, and now they needed their reunion. Against Zachariah's lips, his tongue sweeping over his bottom lip, Antonio's strong, masculine scent was intoxicating, and the feel of his work-roughened hands on Zachariah's jaw made his knees go weak. They were made to be together. He knew it, and now with Grogon gone, they finally could be. I didn't betray you, Zachariah said when they broke apart. I know. Antonio's eyes glittered feverishly with desire, but this was neither the time nor the place for them to give in to their burning need for each other. Come on, the rangers are on my tail. Let's see how far we can get by sundown. Aziraphale was carefully going through the tedious work of reconciling the till the next evening, when the courier arrived at the shop with a package from Anathema. He signed for it without much thought, and stashed it in his satchel so he could give it to Anathema over dinner. It had been a dreary, wet day, and there hadn't been much foot traffic, which had suited him just fine. His head was still somewhere else, in a burnt sienna landscape of sagebrush and canyons, with a tall, devastatingly handsome man on the back of a Cremello stallion. He'd gone next door to the café earlier in the day for his mid-morning latte, and the barista had indeed flirted with him rather obviously, but Aziraphale couldn't help but compare him to the mental picture he'd developed of Antonio. The barista was a solid, muscular man who looked like he worked out, which was fine if you were into that sort of thing, and Aziraphale assumed plenty of people were. But Antonio was lanky and long. He wasn't skinny, but he was lithe, spare. His hands were calloused, but his fingers were graceful. His neck was one sinuous line, and his hips, oh, Lord, they were sinful. Aziraphale could imagine every inch of him, from the swoop of his collarbones to the dimples on his lower back, and the rest of him, too. It was ridiculous. He knew it was ridiculous, and he could hear Anathema's voice in his head telling him it was ridiculous. As, she would say, putting her tea down. As, you made Antonio up. He's not real. No man could ever live up to your fantasy cowboy boyfriend. No wonder you haven't been on a date in... And here even his mental image of his sister went a bit squiggly out of sheer embarrassment. In five years? Almost six now, but who was counting? He put Warlock on his lead and locked the bookshop's door behind him. Home was a nice enough flat in Mayfair, thanks to the advances for his first five books. Books five through ten had given him enough money to quit his day job as an English teacher, and books ten through fourteen had helped him invest in Anathema's shop and now he was on book fifteen. He hadn't heard from Anathema, but he assumed she'd ring when she got in, so he fed Warlock, 
ordered a curry, put on some puccini, and opened a nice bottle of chardonnay. Then he opened his laptop and settled himself on the couch. Zachariah tangled his fingers into Antonio's hair and kissed him deeply, pulling him down onto the blanket by the fire. He tasted like bourbon and smoke, and Zachariah couldn't kiss him deeply enough. Antonio moaned against him, hips grinding down, his hard... Aziraphale's phone rang again, and he sighed, saw it was anathema, and answered it. Yes, you have to help me, yes, she said, in a tone he'd only heard before a few times, when their father died, when their mother had thrown her out of the house, a tone that suggested she was trying to hold herself together and not quite succeeding. Dearest, what's wrong? As, please, just do what they tell you. <gasps> Strange sounds came from the phone, and a different voice spoke. You're the brother. He, whoever it was, demanded in a rough voice. Yes, Aziraphale breathed. Good. Have you got the package? Sorry? The package. The one that was delivered today. Aziraphale remembered then. Yes, yes, of course, yes. Get it, and bring it to us, or your sister gets it. If you involve the cops, she's dead. I'm going to send you the address now. You've got one week to make it happen. The phone went dead. The thing was, the thing was that Aziraphale had built a carefully ordered life one of routines and familiar objects. His flat was cluttered with his favorite books, his collections of Regency snuff boxes, and West German pottery and misprinted Bibles. He'd traveled, certainly, but he always booked everything six months in advance and had detailed itineraries for each day. He researched the restaurants he wanted to visit, the museums he wanted to go to, he wore a variation of the same outfit every day. He was comfortable. The last time he'd done something spontaneous was when he'd sent the first draft of his first novel, The Flame and the Sword, to the publisher, and while that had turned into a rather delightful thing, he sometimes wondered, often in the middle of the night, when he sat alone in his bed, tapping away at his laptop, whether he'd exhausted all his capacity for adventure in that one moment. This, whatever this situation was, it didn't fit in his sort of life. He sat on the sofa and stared at his phone for a very long time, trying to get his mind to unfreeze. It was ridiculous. Anathema was a bookshop owner with a sideline and rare books. He was a novelist. People like them didn't get wrapped up in kidnappings. The most unexpected thing that had happened to Aziraphale that he could remember was the time he dozed off on the tube and ended up a dozen stops down the line. The phone dinged and an address came through from Anathema's phone. It was in Scotland, and he opened it on the Maps app, zooming out to see exactly where it was, which seemed to be in the middle of nowhere. With trembling hands, he opened his satchel and pulled out the package. It was rectangular, and although whatever was within was heavily padded, it must be a book of some sort. He considered opening it to get a better idea of what it was, 
but then he remembered the panic in Anathema's voice and decided he didn't want to do anything that might endanger her. So he put it carefully back in his satchel and went back to his laptop to book a flight to Aberdeen first thing in the morning. The phone rang again. He recognized the number as the security firm that Anathema used to monitor the shop. He'd accidentally set off the alarm a few times himself, and he answered it. Now what? Mr. Wilder, we've got an alarm at your bookshop. Shall we dispatch the police? Aziraphale steadied himself. Oh, no, I'm... it's a, a false alarm, he said as normally as he could. Could you switch it off, please? He put the package back in his satchel, and not half an hour later he found himself standing in front of the back door to the bookstore, his shoes crunching on broken glass at the back door. The back room had been torn to bits, every drawer pulled out of the desks, all the files on the shelves tipped out. He swallowed and walked into the shop itself. It was much the same story. It seemed as if every book had been dashed down from the shelving, half the furniture overturned. First anathema, and now this. It must be connected to the package. He found the sofa cushion, but it had been shredded, all its stuffing pulled out onto the floor. So he sat down heavily on the sofa without it. This was all far too much. I can't do this he said aloud to the empty air of the shop. But what other choice did he have? He took some deep breaths. First, he had to figure out something to do with Warlock, and of course he had to email his publisher and tell them he wouldn't be sending in his manuscript next week. After that, all he had to do was go to Aberdeen, deliver a package, rescue Anathema, and then everything would be just tickety-boo. Several hours later, at Gatwick Airport, a pale man in a long, grubby trench coat gave up looking for the man he was trying to find when he spotted another man, this one balding, rather squat, and round. Sandleton, the bald man's name was. Haster knew him by sight. He panicked and hid in the women's toilets for a good half an hour before he dared come out by which time Aziraphale, the writer, had completely disappeared. Haster cursed his luck. He'd already missed the man twice, once at the bookshop, and again when he'd driven to his flat and seen him getting into a cab. He'd followed the cab to the airport. It was far too crowded to risk anything there. He slunk off into the airport's newsagent-slash-bookstore, and pretended to be considering which James Patterson book to buy, but pulled his phone out of his pocket instead. Mum, it's me, Haster, he said when Leaguer answered. Yeah, I got caller ID, Leaguer said back. Why are you calling me Mum, though? Haster sighed. It's the cover story, he hissed. Oh, yeah, I forgot. So, what's happening? I lost him. Shit. And I saw Sandofen, which means Gabriel's around here somewhere. Double shit. Yeah. Haster looked around the airport, sucking on his teeth. How's the phone tracking going? Leaguer made a noise. Oh, did you want me to do that now? Haster shut his eyes and rubbed his forehead. 
Yes, Liga, now. He's already got a head start on me, and I've been hiding from Sandolfin, so we need to know where he is. Beers won't be happy about any of this, you know, Liga fretted. Of course, but he must have the book, because it wasn't in the shop. It'll all be okay. Haster wished he could believe that himself. If they didn't find the book before Gabriel and his team got their hands on it, Luke would probably have him killed and fed to the sharks. Wait, did they have sharks in Scotland? No matter. He wouldn't care about the sharks either way if he was dead, and he really, really didn't want to be dead. His phone dinged with the last known coordinates of the bloody novelist he'd already lost, and he hadn't got too far. He was just outside of Aberdeen. That, at least, was good news. Aziraphale was lost. He was lost, his phone had died, and he'd forgotten to bring the car charger. He was on some tiny back road somewhere in the wilderness of Scotland, and it was an utter disaster. The road was so skinny he couldn't even turn around, and he hated driving at the best of times, but now he was lost. And he was seeing things, because at Gatwick he swore he was being followed by a pale-haired man in a long, grubby trench coat, and he'd hidden in a bathroom for half an hour before he'd gathered up the courage to walk out and dash for his flight. He had probably been seeing things. He grimly gripped the steering wheel. It was raining. He'd been driving for hours after picking up the hire car in Aberdeen. He'd had no sleep, and he'd eaten two whole packs of Maltesers and drank seven lattes, so he felt jittery and light-headed. He'd printed out a hard copy of the map, of course. He wasn't that stupid, just almost that stupid. But he had no idea where he was in relation to the map, so it might as well have been a map of Columbia for all the good it was doing him. The road wound alongside some small hill. It was dreadfully picturesque, looking out over a valley of red and gold. Heather? Gorse? There were hills and what might have been mountains, jutting grey in the distance. Low clouds were beginning to scud in, and if Aziraphale had been there on a nice drive, he'd have stopped to take a photo. But he wasn't, and he chided himself for even thinking about the scenery, when he should be trying to find a place to turn around. The road was rather narrow, barely wide enough for two cars to pass, with the hill on one side and a steadily increasing sheer drop on the other, and he hadn't seen a place to turn around for ages. He also hadn't seen another car for a while. He'd also lost track of how many times he'd backtracked and apparently driven in circles since his phone had gone dead. The low clouds advanced over the valley, backlit in the afternoon sun, and a fine drizzle began over the car. It didn't stay a drizzle for long, unfortunately, and soon it was raining properly. Wonderful, Aziraphale thought sourly. Right, he was going to turn around right now. He slowed the car. The road was so narrow here it was basically going to be a three or more point turn. It wasn't even a paved road. It was just gravel now and the rain was so thick and he was halfway through the turn, and by the time he saw the other car it was too late. 
There was a crash, and for a moment Aziraphale had no idea what was happening as he heard breaks, screeching, and a smash. His skin stung as he was pelted with small objects, which he realized a moment later was glass from the windscreen, and oh bugger he'd been hit by the other car, and his brain chose that moment to helpfully remind him he'd refused the stupid car hire extra insurance, and now he was on the hook for this Volkswagen as well as everything else. There was silence, and nothing was moving and Aziraphale forced himself to breathe and open his eyes because he'd scrunched them tightly shut. The airbag had inflated, and the windscreen had shattered, and he saw the crumpled front end of some sort of boxy four-wheel drive thing. He met eyes with its driver. They stared at one another for what felt like a very long time. Then the man from the other car was undoing his seatbelt, throwing open his door, and already yelling. Oh, no, Aziraphale thought dimly. We've had a crash, and now he's going to shout at me. He was indeed. He stalked towards Aziraphale, and because there was no windscreen on the Volkswagen anymore, Aziraphale could very clearly hear every word of his angry yelling. You absolute fucking pillock! What were you doing? You complete dickhead! You... Fuck! Fuck! Are you okay? Are you hurt? Aziraphale's brain took a moment to process the words, and he didn't really understand them, and for some reason he decided then that what he really should do was try to reverse out of the man's boxy car, so he lifted his foot off the brake and pushed the accelerator. If the crash itself had been stunningly instantaneous, the next part seemed to happen in very slow motion, like a bad dream, as if the whole thing wasn't part of some awful dream. Because instead of having the car in reverse, it was still in drive, and the Volkswagen leaped forward. There was more crunching and a terrible noise, and the car slid in slow motion over the side of the road. Aziraphale slammed on the brakes for the second time before the Volkswagen followed the other vehicle down the hill. It wasn't that steep, but it was steep enough, and the boxy car did quite a slow but inexorable tumble over the edge before sliding down the hill where it landed with a loud, crunching, banging noise at the bottom of the valley. Oh, fuck, Aziraphale thought again. Oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. Fuck! The other car's driver, who Aziraphale had quite frankly forgotten about, was suddenly right there, yanking open the door of the Volkswagen, and Aziraphale briefly thought, the part of him that hadn't died in horrified mortification, that he was going to be able to add some sort of assault to his list of awful things that happened that day. But instead the man leaned over him to yank on the handbrake and kill the engine. You... what? The man made a series of spluttering noises that sounded rather like a whole stretch of consonants linked together instead of words, and Aziraphale looked up into his face. He had time to note that the man was wearing sunglasses and had red hair before his mouth switched back on. I am so, so, so sorry. I'm just... 
This is... I've had the most awful day, and I got lost, and I was just turning around, and I'm so sorry. I was just trying to reverse so we could inspect the damage, and of course I'll pay for everything, and my phone has gone flat, and I completely forgot the charging cable, and I really am so, so sorry, though I'd probably prefer it if you didn't hit me, but if you want to, I really do understand. It's just been an utterly awful day, and my sister, you see, and... The flood of words died, leaving him breathless. The man was gaping now. Did you hit your head or something? He didn't seem as though he was going to punch Aziraphale at least, although it made Aziraphale feel even more like crying, which he wasn't going to do, of course. He was a grown man, and he was going to hold himself together. Stiff upper lip. I don't know, Aziraphale admitted shakily. Get out and let's take a look at you, then, the man said, if you can stand. Aziraphale nodded at that. I think so. But then he discovered his hands were shaking too much to undo his seatbelt, so the man leaned over him and did it for him, before helping him to his feet. There were chunks of broken glass everywhere, and they fell to the ground around his feet. His legs were wobbly and he suddenly thought he might fall, so he clutched at the man for support. He was thin, but wiry, and he felt comfortingly solid, and for a moment Aziraphale leaned into him. Are you okay? the man said again, hand patting at Aziraphale's back in a rather awkward way. Aziraphale forced himself to step back. Yes, just a bit wobbly, thank you. But I seem to be in one piece. Are you... are you hurt yourself? No, I'm fine. I mean, you've just driven my car off the hill, and that's a fucking disaster, so I'm not actually fine. Not fine. But I'm not actually hurt. They stared at each other. The man was taller than Aziraphale, and he had longish red hair, half pulled back from his face in a ponytail. He was angular and, Aziraphale thought rather shamefully, quite good-looking. Well, there was no quite about it. He was very good-looking, which somehow made the whole thing even worse, as if crashing into the car of a not-good-looking person might have been any better. Really, Aziraphale, get a hold of yourself. I am so sorry, Aziraphale said again. Should we call the police? Or, or, or roadside assistance? He realized he had no idea what to do, and he looked at the man in the hope he'd have some wonderful suggestion that would answer all their problems. No police, the man said. He seemed to have exhausted all his anger, and now he just sounded tired. It'll just get complicated. Okay. All right. So... My mate has a tow truck. I'll call him. But, shit, my phone is down there. At that, he pointed to the car at the bottom of the hill. Aziraphale looked down at the car, then back at the man's face, and tried to resist the urge to apologize again, but failed. I'm so very, he said, but the man held up both hands and made a disgusted noise. Ugh, just stop it, okay? You're sorry, yep, I get it. I'm sure you didn't do this on purpose, unless this was all some sort of elaborate murder scheme or something, and you don't look like a murderer. 
I dare say murderers generally don't, Aziraphale said, and immediately regretted it. Go on then, kill me, make my day even better. The man huffed out a breath as if mentally steadying himself, but he didn't give Aziraphale a chance to respond further. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down there, get my phone and my backpack, and then I'm going to call Dave and his tow truck, and hopefully we'll be out of here before tomorrow. With that, he began clambering down the hill, leaving Aziraphale standing in the steadily worsening drizzle. What can I do? Aziraphale called after his back. I think you've done enough, the man replied acidly, and Aziraphale winced. He turned to look back at the wreck of the hire car and saw that the rain was coming down in sheets across the valley. He reached in across the car and grabbed his umbrella and took off after the man. Please wait! He scrambled a little on the slope to catch up. It was steeper than it looked, and the car had made quite a jagged mess of things as it had slid past. The rocks were damp, and he stumbled but caught up in a moment. The man turned glaring. What? Aziraphale opened the brawley and held it out, a peace offering. You'll be drenched before you get down there, he said, and gave a little laugh. You wouldn't want to be wet on top of everything else. The man's face contorted through several expressions before landing on something close to puzzlement. No, but thank you, he said with exaggerated politeness and set off down the slope again. Well then, Aziraphale hovered, hand still extended, for a useless moment, before he decided to follow. Perhaps he could be helpful and carry something up. He just felt so awful and sorry, but he definitely thought he shouldn't apologize again. But he couldn't just stand there. So he followed the man as he zigzagged down the slope. It was slow going, especially for Aziraphale wearing his favorite warm brown leather dress shoes, which had virtually no grip at all, and his umbrella in one hand. The red-headed man, in contrast, seemed like a mountain goat, making his way down the mountain slope with easy confidence, even as the rain grew heavier. Aziraphale couldn't help but admire his easy movements, the confidence of his steps on the slope. He had rather long legs, clad in a pair of slim-fitting black jeans that sat low on his hips. Aziraphale tried not to watch him, and failed, as the rest of him was hardly any better, or worse, to look at. He was wearing only a tight black, long-sleeved t-shirt, and it very clearly defined the shape of his upper body, the move of muscles over his back, as he steadied himself at a particularly steep spot. Stop it! Aziraphale told himself firmly. This was not the time to ogle the poor man. There would never be a worse time than this to ogle anyone. Instead, he followed him down as best he could, albeit much less gracefully. The man shot him a look. What are you doing? Coming with you. Why? To help. You're a regular bloody angel, you are. The man was at the bottom of the slope now, and Aziraphale could hear him making dismayed sounds at the state of his vehicle. I, I thought if I helped you it might go faster. Aziraphale was a few steps behind him. 
Because, well, I've got a bit of a situation, and... We've all got our problems today, haven't we? The man said, yanking open the passenger door, and half climbed into the car, the action pulling his jeans tight around his thighs and backside. Aziraphale decided then that he must have suffered head trauma and not realized it, because he was standing in the rain in the wilds of Scotland, with some strange man whose car he had just completely destroyed, and he was staring at his arse. The man climbed out again and pulled on a black jacket, some expensive-looking padded Gore-Tex thing that was rather less stylish than the rest of his outfit. But, Aziraphale thought, as the rain began to come down in earnest now, was probably pretty warm. Then the man had his phone in his hands and scowled at it before he viciously kicked the tire of his car. Fuck! No bloody signal! Ooh! Aziraphale couldn't even muster up surprise at that. Of course, they were in the middle of the wilds of Scotland. The man had stuffed his phone into his pocket and was standing, his hands in his own hair, staring off into the distance. There was a long moment where the only sound was the drumming of rain on the roof of the car and Aziraphale's umbrella. New plan, the man said. I'm getting my stuff. We'll drive your car back to the village, and I'm going to get drunk for a week. And you're going to pay for it, and you're buying the good stuff. Lafrog, okay? He went to the car and spent several minutes stuffing things into a large army-style backpack. Aziraphale saw the back of the jeep was full of filing boxes, plastic bags, and well-used-looking shovels and sledgehammers. What were you doing out here? Aziraphale asked, despite himself. Archaeological survey, the man said shortly. But this stuff should be okay here, I hope. He handed something to Aziraphale, who looked down and saw it was a box of protein bars. You can carry that. He slammed the boot shut, shouldered his backpack, and started back up the hill. Aziraphale followed him back up the slope and definitely did not spend any time being distracted by those tight black jeans. It was definitely all the adrenaline and ridiculousness of it all, he told himself firmly. Some sort of flight, fight, or fu- Well, that response anyway. He had to focus on getting back to civilization, getting to where Anathema was being held, sorting out all the problems- and giving this man enough money to make up for this whole sorry affair. By the time Aziraphale got back up the hill, the man was standing by the Volkswagen. Why don't you do the honors? Aziraphale said, and the man hopped into the driver's seat. Please start, Aziraphale thought hopefully. The car, of course, did not. End of chapter one. Thank you for reading. Please drop by the archive and let the author know what you thought of their work.